Good morning all. Today's reading is from 1 John chapter 1, um, verse 9 to chapter 2, verse 2. So, short one today. (laughs) If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. If we claim we have not sinned, we make him out to be a liar and his word is not in us. My dear children, I write this to you so that you will not sin. But if anybody does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the Righteous One. He is the atoning sacrifice for our sins, and not only for ours, but also for the sins of the whole world. Thanks so much, Laura. I'm going to pray as we... Go on on our series in prayer that we've been doing this term and looking at confession this morning. We need God's help as we come to his word, so I'm going to ask on behalf of us for that now. Gracious Father, we need your help. We need your help to understand your ways, to understand your word, and not just to understand them, but take them to heart. We ask that you would help us do that now as we come to this topic of confessing, confessing our sins. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Have you ever felt guilty? I think that's a yes. Uh, We all feel it, right? How about now? Feeling guilty now? How long did you or have you lived with it? How did you or are you dealing with it? Because big or small, guilt is a real problem for pretty much everyone. Our society has a number of ways of dealing with it. Uh, Following the father of psychoanalysis, Sigmund Freud, uh, many have seen guilt as reducible to an emotion, a subjective feeling that uh, we can be cleansed of just with a little bit of therapy and some drugs. Uh, Others uh, turn to ways to make themselves feel less guilty, Uh, Some tear down things or people like statues or celebrities who are associated with something atrocious. They tear these down to show their own innocence. Or or some compare themselves to others who are really guilty so they can say to themselves, well, I'm not that guilty, and so avoid having to take a hard look at themselves. Others actually adopt victimhood as their identity, not because they've experienced any genuine victimisation, but to emphasise their own suffering and innocence and avoid thinking about their own guilt. Obsessing over therapeutic measures, blaming others or playing the victim, they're staples for our society as it tries to deal with guilt. But there's a better way, and that's confessing it, particularly to God. But first, uh, let's recap before we look at that. Let's recap on where we've been over the last number of weeks when it comes to prayer. Uh, firstly, Jesus' prayers, we saw, are the most important. He not only died the death that we should have died, but he lived the righteous life that we should have lived. And as such, he prayed the prayers that we should have prayed in our place for our sake. Our prayers are only acceptable in Christ, by faith in him. Christ is the one true prayer. Secondly, we saw uh, the proper form of prayer throughout the scriptures is actually asking God to keep his promises, which 
he says, are all fulfilled in Christ. And then after that, we spent a couple of uh, weeks looking at the Lord's Prayer, Jesus' template prayer, uh, that shows us the richness of calling on God our Father in heaven and asking him for a number of things. Firstly, that his name, his holy name be praised, which we looked at in more detail last week. Secondly, to be asking for a bunch of things from everything and everyone submitting to Jesus to uh, our, then to our daily bread, which we probably should have been looking at more closely this week if we were strictly following the order that Jesus lays down, but we'll do that next week uh, when we look at the whole area of petition about asking God for things. But today we're going to focus on the thing Jesus teaches us, the next thing that Jesus teaches us to pray, and that is forgiveness, which brings up brings us to confession. Because as we've heard, just heard in the Bible reading, uh, just now, if we confess our sins, he, God, we're told, is faithful and just and he will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. Uh, to have God's forgiveness then is to confess our sins to him. But it's also to know God's faithfulness and justice and righteousness in Christ. And so that's where... Uh, we're going today uh, with confessing sin and God's forgiveness to see firstly that confession actually glorifies God. The first thing, confession glorifies God. Secondly, confession is wholly good for us. And finally, some ways to cultivate uh, confession. So that's where we're going. Uh, But firstly, to confess our sin is to glorify God. Before we get into that, though, we we need to get our head around sin. Uh, The reformer, John Calvin, uh, he helpfully tags sin, he calls sin unfaithfulness towards God. That is, turning away from respecting and honouring and thanking God, turning away from that to personal ambition and and personal desire and, and then stubborn disobedience. It starts in the heart and it ends in action. As the Bible says uh, elsewhere, each one is tempted when by his own evil desire he is dragged away and enticed. Then after desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin, and sin, when it's full grown, gives birth to death. So sin, sin is being tempted away from God by something in our heart, evil desires. Uh, It's like someone who's not your husband or your wife tempting you to play around with them. Except that someone is not, it is your own heart, <laughs> your own desires. And as you give in to those desires, one thing leads to another and you do the deed. You do the thing you know God doesn't want you to do, you end up cheating on God. But from beginning to end, your heart's desire, uh, it's from, from your heart's desire to your actions, can you see it's, it's unfaithfulness? And this is what sin is, being unfaithful to God uh, in your heart and in your actions, loving other things or other people more than him. And so we get more intimate with them over him and sadly give our heart to them, which can't satisfy, which they can't satisfy or handle correctly, which will end in our life falling apart, wasting away and death. And that's the consequence of being unfaithful with God. And the Bible makes it clear that we have all and are faithful, unfaithful to God. 
And to deny it is to deceive ourselves and call God a liar. As we read earlier uh, in 1 John, if we claim to be without sin, without unfaithfulness, we deceive ourselves and the truth isn't in us. If we claim we have not sinned, haven't been unfaithful, we make him, God, to be out, out to be a liar and his word isn't in us. The flip side being, if we say that our heart's desires are good and right and that we should go after our own truth and do whatever we think is right for us, we're deceived and we're calling God a liar. Because he says that our hearts and our actions are unfaithful to him. We're cheaters through and through. But to confess our sin, to confess our unfaithfulness, is actually to say, you're right, God. I'm wrong. I'm a cheater. I accept the truth, that truth from you. I trust you, even in your judgment on me. I know you're right. And I'm ashamed. And I'm a mess. And I deserve nothing from you but your jealous anger. And to sincerely say this to God is actually to glorify him. It's to give him his due. Right? More than that, as we confess our unfaithfulness to God and fall on his mercy for forgiveness in Jesus, it's to further glorify him. Because he's the one who's provided Jesus for us in the first place. As we read in 1 John, if anybody does sin, and we all do, we have an advocate with the Father. Jesus Christ, the Righteous One. He is the atoning sacrifice for our sins. As we're unfaithful, we have an advocate, uh, or a parakletos is the word in the Greek, the same word for counsellor in a, in a legal setting, a defence attorney, so to speak, a, a, an advocate. Jesus is our advocate with the Father. Now, after he rose from the dead, he ascended back to the Father where he is now, and there he pleads the merits of his righteous life given in place of our unrighteous ones when he died on that cross. He, in heaven now, he points to the atoning power of his sacrifice for us before the Father. That's what he's doing. Now, uh, atoning sacrifice here, it's probably better translated as the word propitiation. Uh, propitiation... I know, it sounds like a fancy pants word and something like a sneeze. Um, but it's a good word. It's a really good word. And it's worth getting under your belt uh, because it's the means, what propitiation means, is, it is the thing that turns God's anger away. It's the means by which God's anger is turned away. His jealous anger at our unfaithfulness. Propitiation. And Jesus appeals to his own death in our place to be that, to be the propitiation, the thing that turns that rightly jealous anger of God away from us as it was turned on him and exhausted on him on that cross. Jesus, the Son, pleads the merits of his sacrifice to his Father currently in heaven for us, which of course the Father accepts. The Father and the Son, they agreed upon this before time began, that this would be the case. And so to fall on God's mercy for forgiveness in Jesus, it's again to affirm the rightness and the goodness of God in his judgments. It's to say to God, not only do I trust you and trust your judgment on me as being unfaithful, but I trust that you are faithful. 
I trust that your predetermined loving provision of Jesus to turn away your jealous anger at my unfaithfulness, that that is true. It's to accept all God's judgments and his provisions as true and good and right. It's to accept that he is God and that as much as we might have sinned, Jesus' propitiation is more than enough for us. Indeed, it's enough for the whole world, for the sins of the whole world. That means that there is no unfaithful desire or action that we have or commit that Jesus' death doesn't cover. And so as we trust in Jesus and think about our own sinfulness, we shouldn't wallow in our sin or beat ourselves up for being so sinful so often, even as we do perhaps the same thing over and over and over again, bemoaning how bad we are as some kind of mental whip, you know, flagellating ourselves, beating ourselves up with, so as to somehow make atonement for our own sins by feeling bad enough about them. That's, well, that's as foolish as trying to avoid the guilt or cover it up as just unhealthy thinking. Uh, you know, to be dealt with in therapy, in drugs, or with blame shifting, or playing the victim. There's only one way to deal with sin and guilt at its core, and that's been done once and for all at the cross of Jesus. There is truly no condemnation for those who are trusting in Christ Jesus. No matter what you've done, thought, said or felt, even what you will do, think, say or feel, Christ's sacrifice covers it all. The whole lot. So, for those believing in Jesus, as we confess our sins to God, we can be assured, absolutely assured, that we are forgiven. 100% forgiven. Now and forever. Indeed, to confess our sin is not firstly to be forgiven, but in the act of confessing to glorify God. Not that long ago, there was an app uh, that you could download on your phone. It's called Confession a Roman Catholic app, which uh, basically uh, served as an online alternative to going into the historic uh, confessional booth with the priest. But uh, there's, there's an app, that there is an app now that you can confess uh, to, kind of, I reckon, highlights a problem with the whole confessional thing, uh, which is that it can be all about the confessor and the priest and not about God. It's all about the confessor getting whatever it is that's been troubling them off their chest and about being given some direction by a priest on what to do to get around any temporal punishment of God. It's all about what people have done and can do to make amends. As such, it can easily be seen as just another way to make things right with God on your own effort. Rather than accept that at heart we are unfaithful and then to confess that to God and look only to Jesus for forgiveness, which will actually cut at the root of sin, that is, that life's all about us, to get at what it's firstly about. It's about God. And it's about glorifying Him. To confess, then, is to glorify God. And then, it's to enjoy the health of such confession. Which brings us to the second point. Confession is wholly good for us. Uh, first up, because to confess is to know God's forgiveness afresh. It's to savour the eternal get-out-of-hell-free card from God. 
Right? This is spiritually and eternally good for us. God's anger at our sin has been and is eternally turned away from us. When Jesus returns, uh, he won't be showing everyone our whole lives on a screen right, to, to shame us. Uh, you know, all the rubbish things and evil things that we've thought and said and done to guilt us and shame us and everyone's going to go, oh, look at that, lucky you're forgiven, but oh my gosh, that was bad. Uh, that's already done with. That's not going to happen. That's dealt with at the cross of Jesus. Jesus bore all our guilt, all our shame for us. Forgiveness is now and it is eternal. And we can enjoy the reality of that every time we confess. That's good for us. Second thing, to confess, it's actually emotionally and psychologically freeing. King David, he knew this, as he says in the psalm that he wrote, Psalm 32, When I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy on me. He's talking to God. My strength was sapped and as in the heat of summer. Then I acknowledged my sin to you and I didn't cover up my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord. And you forgave the guilt of my sin. I'm sure that we can all relate to those feelings in some way, right? Who hasn't felt their strength sapped by their guilt and shame at some stage in their life? A while back I was stressing out about a breakup in a relationship and how I'd mistreated something, someone, but wanting to justify my behaviour and how, in terms of how the other person had behaved and how others perceived the other person's behaviour too. But nothing really shifted my guilty feeling. Indeed, it very much felt like my bones were wasting away and that I was groaning all day long with a gut ache until I owned it and confessed it to God. And then there was great relief. Happiness even. As King David says at the beginning of that psalm, blessed or better, happy. Happy is the one whose transgressions are forgiven, whose sins are covered. Happy is the one whose sin the Lord doesn't count against them. Yeah, once I stopped deceiving myself and owned the guilt and confessed, I knew God's forgiveness in Jesus. And this is all. This relief is for all those who believe in Jesus and are clothed in his faithfulness, in Jesus' faithfulness. As Psalm 32 says to God, let all the faithful, all those who are trusting in Jesus, pray to you, God, while you may be found. Surely the rising of the mighty waters will not reach them. You are my hiding place. You will protect me from trouble and surround me with songs of deliverance. Can you see there's, a, there's an emotional and psychological shift in this psalm and, and a, a, an emotional and psychological safety and relief and even joy in confession. It's, it's good for us. It's good for us. And not just as we confess to God, but also as we confess to each other. As the Bible says elsewhere, confess your sins to each other and pray for each other so that you may be healed. Whether you're sick in body or mind, James says we're to pray for each other and, and confess our sins to each other so that we might be healed. At the very least, this means to know we're forgiven. Uh, healed of the broken relationship with God and then also know healing of the weakness and the pain that comes along with the bitterness of unforgiveness, either our own unforgiveness or others. Confession to each other and to God, it's emotionally and psychologically freeing. It's good for us. Thirdly, 
uh, it's an opportunity for a change of heart. As King David goes on in Psalm 32, after learning from the pain of not confessing his sins to God uh, earlier, he says to each of us, don't be like the horse or the mule, which have no understanding, but, me, but must be controlled by bit and bridle, or they will not come to you. David is saying, don't be like me. Don't be like a mule that's controlled by a bit and bridle to come to you, coming to you, not because it loves you, but because it's forced to. Don't, don't wait until the crushing guilt and shame of your sin forces you to confess. Do it out of love for God, to know afresh his unfailing love and to rejoice in him. As David goes on to say, many of the woes of the wicked, but the unfailing love surrounds the one who trusts in God. Rejoice in the Lord and be glad, you righteous. Sing, all you who are upright in heart. As David teaches us, let's not wait until we feel guilty to confess our sins. As those whom can trust in Jesus, let's confess to enjoy the unfailing love of God in Jesus and have more reason to rejoice in him and be glad. Confession, it's wholly good for us. It helps us enjoy our eternal forgiveness. It's emotionally and psychologically freeing and it helps us love God and enjoy him more. I heard a uh, TED talk the other day by a guy called uh, Nero uh, Zivanathan. Anyway, uh, he's an organisational psychologist who reckons when... We're trying to be persuasive uh, that increasing the number of arguments doesn't actually strengthen your case. It actually weakens it. Uh, Quality doesn't improve with quantity, (laughs) he argues. So he says, stick to your strong arguments because your arguments don't add up in the minds of the receiver. They average out. Now, I think the idea of confessing our sins to glorify God, that's that's a strong point. That's a strong argument. And I'm hoping the promise of confession being wholly good for us, uh, I'm hoping that doesn't average out your interest in seeing confession as a regular part of your prayer life. And so with that hope, we come to our final point, cultivating confession. Uh, There's a bunch of ways to get good at confessing our sins, but uh, here's just a few. First, use the Psalms. Use the Psalms that have confession of sin in them as something of a template. Uh, Psalms like Psalm 6, Psalm 32, Psalm 38, Psalm 51, Psalm 130, or Psalm 143. If you haven't got all those down, you can come to me later. Uh, Remember when you... Come to these psalms to read them with Jesus in mind and to take on board the expressive and metaphorical language that the psalms use to to get passionate about confessing your sin and savouring God in his forgiveness. Second, find someone you trust to confess your sins with so that you might pray for each other together Or, or, or listen in on those who've been praying for many years and are sensitive to their own sins and the sins of people generally and what people generally struggle with and are practised in confessing them. There are a number of those folk here in our church family who actually attend our monthly prayer meeting that started last month. The next one is on Monday night, on the 19th of September, if you want some free lessons. Come along and listen to the humble confession of godly and wise souls 
to not only say amen to those prayers, but to learn from them in your own confession, for your own confessions. Thirdly, carefully go through the Ten Commandments to see how you might have broken them so that you might be specific in confessing the sins that uh, you've been aware of committing, not only those, but along with that, perhaps those that you haven't been aware of. A very useful tool to help us do this is what's called the Larger Catechism. Uh, It's a bunch of questions and answers about the Christian faith. Uh, It was put together uh, in the 1640s to go along with what's called the Westminster Confession of Faith, which is still the standard of what the Presbyterian Church of Australia believes, amongst a bunch of other things. The Larger Catechism unpacks the Ten Commandments uh, and the many possible sins that flow out of breaking each one of them. So, for instance, with the first commandment, you shall have no other gods before me. Question 105 in the larger catechism asks, what are the sins forbidden in the first commandment? With the answer being, the sins forbidden in the first commandment are atheism, in denying or not having a god, idolatry, in having or worshipping more gods than one, or any with or instead of the true God, the not having and avouching him for God and our God, the omission or neglect of anything due to him required in this commandment, ignorance, forgetfulness, misapprehensions, false opinions, unworthy and wicked thoughts of him, bold and curious searching into his secrets, all profaneness, hatred of God, self-love, self-seeking, and all other inordinate and immoderate setting of our mind, will or affections upon other things and taking them off from him in whole or in part. That's just a third of them. On this commandment, the first one, and they've all got scripture references. Very helpful. Plenty of fodder, I think, to prompt us to consider how we might have broken just the first commandment in thought, word and deed, so that we might be able to thoughtfully confess our sins to God. You can actually purchase a copy of the larger catechism for 11 bucks on Amazon. Or you can download a Kindle or an e-book for 5 bucks. Or you can go to a website, check it out there for free. Here's one that I found that's easy to navigate around. Now, Please don't use this exercise uh, to beat yourself up. That's not the point. Rather, see it as a tool to glorify God in his judgments and in his provision of Jesus and to grow in love for God and his ways as we look to cultivate confession in our prayers. In uh, 1994... Clive White caught a giant rainbow trout when he visited Diva Springs Trout Fishery in Hampshire, uh, coming in at 16.7 kilograms. Apparently that's big. Uh, it went straight into the British records. But eight years later, Clive wrote to the British Records Fish Committee and he fessed up to the fact that he hadn't caught that fish. A mate had left it dead on the shoreline for him to find, which he then claimed he caught and recorded. And this is what he said in his confession. 
I am very sorry and deeply regret what I have done, but cannot live a lie anymore, as it has destroyed my marriage and it very nearly destroyed me. I know a lot of people will take a dim view of what I have done, but now I can sleep at night knowing that I have nothing to hide. But Clive doesn't know the half of it. Because while confessing our sins to others is good, it's only wholly good for us as we confess them to God. Even when we don't feel guilty. Firstly, for his glory. So let's make a confession a regular part of our prayers. And to that end, I thought we could spend the next few minutes using Psalm, 150, uh, Psalm 51 sorry, as a template to practice confessing our own sins to God now. Now, I'm sorry if that's small, but if you ha- there are Bibles in the pigeonholes up the back if you would like to grab one, Psalm 51, or you can look it up on your device, and we're going to spend a few minutes now using that, that Psalm as a template to practice confessing our own sins to God. Mm-hmm.